Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 125, 125. Thank you for joining us. And if you've just joined us, you might want to go back and listen to all the others. I mean, you've got a lot of catching up to do. But a lot of the, some of the stuff in the old ones would be dated, I suppose. And some of, but some of it would be timeless. So maybe you ought to go back. Be that as it may. Let's say you did. And then you come back and listen to this one. And you are most welcome. Good to have you here. So podcast 125. I want to talk a little bit about um, the woke scolds among us. I'm not talking here about the, the policy positions that are being urged, whether it's um, on racial reconciliation or um, the treatment of women or uh, climate change or, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about a difference of opinion that two people could have over whether or not the climate is changing or whether that's negative or positive or, or neutral. And I'm not talking about um, uh, a difference between two good-hearted people who are discussing the best way to bring about racial reconciliation between whites and blacks in America. I'm not, I'm not talking about the phenomenon of a conservative and a liberal disagreeing about a policy proposal. I'm talking about another phenomenon. Uh, well, I won't say another phenomenon entirely because I don't think it's entirely separate, but I, it, it is distinct. And that is the phenomenon of the woke scold. So um, like the, uh, uh, the, the girl from Scandinavia who came over to scold everybody, um, how dare you at the, at the United, I think it was the United Nations, how dare you take away my childhood. And, and then she just recently said, and this is all part of a framework of the battle against uh, colonial oppression, et cetera, the whole raft of uh, leftist um, talking points. But my, my point here is not the substance of the policy, but the demeanor, the demeanor of, of scolding, of how dare you, you, you filthy excuse for a human being. How dare you disagree with me? How dare you be a climate denier? How dare you rob me of my childhood? How dare, you know, you are just an awful person. Now, I want to suggest that this is an anti-gospel frame of mind. This is an anti-gospel frame of mind. And I'm talking about here, I'm talking here about the demeanor. So, uh, and, and it's true that there are preachers of the gospel itself, people who are orthodox enough and they, uh, they've read their Bibles and they know that Jesus died and he was buried and he rose again from the dead and he, he did this uh, so that we could offer salvation and, and uh, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And that's all gospel. That's the objective reality of um, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there are people who preach that gospel as Paul says in Philippians, there are people who preach the gospel because they're trying to get Paul in trouble. That's an anti-gospel frame of mind. And sometimes the anti-gospel frame of mind comes out and it's manifested, um, uh, it's manifested in the preaching. So um, I, I recently read, I, I may have even talked about it here on the podcast, a uh, great book called uh, Calvin's Company of Pastors. And there was one pastor in Geneva that... Uh, one of his parishioners said he always looked like he was going to bite you. <laughs> well, that demeanor is an anti-gospel demeanor. 
Okay, that, that demeanor is an anti-gospel demeanor. There's a joke that's told about um, there was a conservative, very conservative um, Methodist congregation. I know that sounds oxymoronic, doesn't it? They were, uh, the very conservative Methodist congregation up in the mountains, probably in Appalachia somewhere. And they sent word down to the bishop that they, they needed a new pastor, um, and they, they wanted the bishop to find them, as, as per their request, they wanted him to find them a hellfire and damnation preacher. And he didn't have all that many, but the bishop hunted around and, and finally came up with a hellfire damnation preacher and sent him up to um, serve in that church. And he lasted like three weeks. And they, they, uh, didn't, they didn't want him. They asked, for another, they asked the bishop to find them another hellfire damnation preacher. So he rummaged and rummaged and rummaged and found another hellfire damnation preacher, sent him up, and he lasted two weeks. And so they said, look, uh, we, don't, we don't want to keep bothering you, but you would, could you please find us a, an, another hellfire damnation preacher? So he, um, he did, sent this uh, third one up, and the third one ministered there fruitfully for like the next 30 years. And this really puzzled the bishop. He'd, he'd sent two, and they were sent packing, and he sent a third hellfire damnation preacher up, and he lasted for 30 years. So uh, it happened that a, at a conference that uh, the bishop met, ran into one of the old-timers from that congregation, and he, and he said, I've been curious about this for many years. Why, why did you send the first two packing? And all three of them were hellfire damnation preachers. And the old-timer said, yes, but the, the third one sounded like he didn't want us to go. <laughs> All right, so there's two ways of preaching uh, uh, judgment. There's, the kind of, there's a way of preaching judgment that sounds like you want the people to go and good riddance. And the other, that, that you're trying to plead with them to turn, flee from the wrath to come. The, the woke scolds of our generation are... Uh, contemptuous, biting, vindictive, pharisaical, wound, tight. They're not trying to, they're not trying to s save us from our folly. They're trying to um, scold us for our folly, and ch they, they're, they're wanting to chase us deeper uh, into it. it this, this kind of woke scoldery is not going to deliver anybody from anything. And uh, Christians need to make sure that we don't duplicate it with our own uh, woke scold. Uh, how how dare you be white? How how dare you be affluent? How dare you be American? How dare you be this or that or the you know? How dare you drive an SUV? This um, it's the scolding that betrays and declares to the world these people have no good news. These people have no savior. These people have no cleansing, and they and having no cleansing, they're not in a position to offer cleansing. They're not in a position to offer forgiveness. So we're continuing with our podcast, episode one twenty-five, and uh, this is our third cognate uh, word. Uh, we remember we've talked about the sin, ungodliness. We've talked about the verb to live in an ungodly way, and here, um, asebes, it refers to the ungodly people. We've already uh, considered uh, 
asebea, which refers to the sin of ungodliness. We've considered the verb form asebeo, which is the word that means to live in an ungodly way. And now we come to the people who are doing all of this. So first, the ungodly are those whom Christ came to save. This is in Romans 4, 5. But to him that worketh not, but, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So, him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. So, God justifies the ungodly. What, what is the raw material out of which God makes a saint? God makes a saint out of the raw material of sinner. He justifies the ungodly. In Romans 5, 6, it says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. There it is again. Um, Asebea. God, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for us not because we were godly and deserved it, but rather because we were ungodly and did not deserve it. If we were godly and deserved it, there would have been no need to die. So the fact that Christ died meant that we didn't deserve it. Scripture teaches us that the law has different uses. One defines ungodliness and prepares the sinner for the salvation Christ offers. Another use of the law is found in 1 Timothy, where the law is used as the standard of public order. This is in 1 Timothy 1.9. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, there it is, for the ungodly, and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, the list goes on. So the law is for the ungodly. And it's not to, um, it's not to give them a ladder to climb up to heaven with. It's to give the magistrate a standard so that he can know what standard to use as he's restraining the ungodly. That's the use of the law that 1 Timothy 1.9 is talking about. Now, not all of the ungodly are saved. Those who are passed by fall under judgment. We see this in a number of places. Judgment is intended for the ungodly, and this is, the, um, this is where the weight of the passages fall. And if the, and if the righteous scarcely be saved, what, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? That's in 1 Peter 4.18. So, if the righteous are scarcely saved, basically what's going to happen to the ungodly? And then in 2 Peter 2.5, it says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So, the antediluvian world was an ungodly world, and the flood came in because, precisely because they were ungodly. Then in 2 Peter 3.7, next chapter, but the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Again, there it is, judgment falling upon the ungodly. Uh, we also have to keep in mind the fact that this sort of person, an ungodly person, knows how to creep into churches. We see this in uh, Jude, um, Jude verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, there they are, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Jude 4. So these ungodly men are creeping into your love feasts, into your uh, potluck meals. They creep into churches 
and then they teach, um, basically they teach antinomianism. Antinomianism is uh, against the law. They don't, they, they are lawless men. Uh, sin is lawlessness, and sin loves to embrace that kind of lawlessness. These are ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. The grace of God forgives sin. Lasciviousness says that it's okay to sin. And, and there's the, a chasm between those two uh, positions. The forgiveness of sin presupposes the sinfulness of it. Um, lasciviousness or lawlessness or antinomianism uh, just dismisses the sin. And then at the last, we have our passage with all the words. Remember, in the previous two um, podcasts, we've been talking about Jude 15, uh, and here it is again, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners, there it is, have spoken against him. Verse 15. So, uh, wrapping up our podcast, episode 125, uh, we come to our book review uh, section. So, I need to give you a little backdrop here. Uh, I have been reading P.G. Woodhouse for many, many years, but it's sort of like, um, but never systematically. So, I would, um, and I forget when I started reading him, probably after the Navy, but I, I, I started reading him very early, early on. And I would grab a book here and grab a book there and enjoy it. Or sometimes I'd go on a P.G. Woodhouse jag and I'd read a few in a row. Doing that is like eating 15 pieces of cheesecake in a row. You, you go, woof, and then you lay off for a, a little while and then you pick up another one. I just uh, pottered around. Basically, I pottered around in the, bland, in the, in the Woodhouse world, which included a bunch of Jeeves and Wooster stories and it included Blanding's Castle, and it included the Drones Club, and it included Mr. Moliner and all of that. So I would just float around uh, library books and whatnot. So um, then uh, a number of years ago, probably 10, probably 10 years or so ago now, maybe a little more, um, uh, my daughter and her husband Ben were over in England um, he was uh, studying at Oxford, and uh, Nancy and I went over and visited them, and I saw over there a, um, a book on Becca's shelf, Jill the Reckless, um, and it was a hardback edition of Woodhouse and a uh, publisher named Overlook Press. Uh, basically, uh, they um, were publishing all of Woodhouse's books in a collectible, basically a collectible matching set, hardback, nicely done. And I saw that book and I started to read it there. And then somewhere in there, I thought, you know, I need to, I'm a Woodhouse fan. I need to read all the Woodhouse. I need to read all of his books. And so I began uh, back then, I, I began, and now you have to understand that Woodhouse wrote like some, something like 90 books. And, um, so he he wrote a lot, and some of them are some of the uh, Woodhouse books are his, his early ventures, his early works are sort of schoolboy uh, English boarding school books, kind of on, almost a schoolboy adventure kind of thing. Um, 
And so not all the Woodhouse, some of the early Woodhouse books are not really Woodhouse. They're not really like Woodhouse. There's, you, if you read one, you would, um, you, it's not like Jeeves and Wooster at all. In fact, he describes, Woodhouse himself describes something snapping early on in his career. He, can, uh, he could identify the moment when something snapped and everything changed, and then he, he found his voice, basically. Well, I was reading, basically, uh, what I would do is I, I finished Jill the Reckless, and when I was partway through it, or when I was coming um, to the end of it, I would order the, order the next one in the Overlook series. So I didn't buy the whole set. And I think the whole set would be a thousand or two thousand dollars, probably. It'd be a, a big, um, um, a big expenditure. But it's not a big expenditure if you only buy a new one when you're ready to read it, uh, because you've read the last one. So I was, I started chipping away at. It. So I'd read, I'd read a Woodhouse in that set, and some of them would be obviously books I'd read before, and some of them would be new. I I hadn't read them before, so I I would just. Um, Work, work my way through. When I was about halfway through it, I would order another one and then um, read it when it came. So currently, I've got about, uh, this was, like I said, maybe 10 years ago, and I've got maybe 20 books to go. Um, and when I, get, um, when I get those 20 done, I, I will have read the uh, entire Woodhouse um, corpus, at least the at least the books and the short stories. He wrote, he wrote screenplays and other things that I don't think are in this, I, I don't think are in this uh, set, but there you go. So um, all of that uh, to tell you to set this up for the uh, most recent one I read, which is Sunset at Landings. And the reason this, and it's part of the set, this is an Overlook Press um, uh, typeset like the rest, but it's an unfinished uh, novel, and it, it is really worth reading uh, regardless because uh, they've done a number, the, they really did a marvelous job with this. Uh, and if you get Sunset at Blandings in another edition, I don't know if it'll have all this extra stuff in it, but it really is worthwhile. So um, uh, Woodhouse finished about half of the, um, uh, half of the novel and I think he was probably writing short. In other words, uh, it's more like a detailed, he was writing it, but there'd be plenty of space for him to come back through, do a second pass and another pass after that and so on, and f flesh it out more. So the first half of the novel is, is largely written, and then uh, they supply, they, they have in the book uh, Woodhouse's outline for the remainder of the um, for the remainder of the book, so you know what happens. You're not left hanging. Um, you know how you know how Woodhouse would have finished the book, and you see how he was writing at at the very end of his life. He lived into his 90s, and and uh, I think he lived into his 90s and was still writing. And um, and then in addition to that, this something else is um, um, fun. You, one of the things that you'll, you'll get from reading this book, if you're a writer, you will, you will pick up a lot of tips on how, on how Woodhouse would do it, how he would uh, set the stage. And one of the things that I was gratified to learn is that uh, Woodhouse uh, would uh, 
his descriptions of places are uh, are very good, and the the way he keeps it consistent is he writes from um, actual places. So the that and that creates the question: Well, what was the um, what was the template or the pattern for Blanding's Castle? Uh, and there's a whole section where they they do some sleuthing, and uh, and they find the the uh, they identify where Blanding's what is the actual Blanding's Castle. And there's another there's another place that has a house on it that supplies the grounds for uh, for Blanding's Castle. And then the fun thing, the really fun thing, is the photograph from the 1920s of uh, the Empress of Blandings, the uh, uh, Lord Emsworth's uh, prize pig. And there's a photograph that some, uh, one of the editors, one of the people doing this book, was hunting down these places and came across an old-timer who, oh yeah, there was a pigsty here, because they were convinced that what Woodhouse did, what Woodhouse would do, is that he would pick a place and write the story with that mental furniture in his mind, to prevent someone from going out a door that wasn't there before. You know, uh, the door on this side of the 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 bedroom. Uh, well, last the previous chapter it was on the other side of the bedroom, and so on. Um, so they they show that that's how Woodhouse wrote, and then. They come up with these places that fit that uh, fit his descriptions like a glove. So there's a picture of the Empress, Empress of uh, uh, of Blandings, and it's a fun story. And you get a lot of tips. Basically, this book is a fun Woodhouse story. And if you're a writer, you're you're going to pick up some interesting tips. So there you go. Mm-hmm.